Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God and uh, the keys to the Kingdom specifically. And one of those keys to the Kingdom is that thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Thou shalt not covet anything that belongs to thy neighbor. You don't want to take away from your neighbor for any sort of reward or advantage or what the Bible calls the wages of unrighteousness, and they are unrighteous because they are based on covetous practices. Peter warns us about this. Paul warns us about this. Jesus Christ warns us about this. Moses warned us about this. The Ten Commandments tells us, Thou shalt not covet. Yet people desire all sorts of things on a daily basis by taking them away. From their neighbor. It's, it should be a no-brainer. It should, it should take no cognitive strain upon you to figure out that desiring anything at the expense of your neighbor is contrary not only to the gospel of the kingdom as related to us by Jesus Christ, uh, Paul the Apostles, Peter, James, All of them, Timothy, all spoke of the fact that we should not be coveting our neighbor's goods, desiring our neighbor's goods. Most people don't understand coveting. They don't understand it. They don't comprehend it because they want to do it. They want to covet their neighbor's goods. And uh, that is contrary to the teachings that we see coming down to us, not only through the biblical scriptures, but through philosophers uh, throughout the ages, historians like Polybius, who warned us that our appetite or benefits at the expense of our neighbor would lead to the degeneration of society and the rise of despots and tyrants. And people don't realize that that has already taken place in the world today. And like Johann von Goth said, none are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe that they are free. I just had a continuation of a conversation I had with a house church group uh, where they originally were talking about, uh, they actually asked a question, I think I said, uh, that they could use some insight. They said, uh, I have a lot of immediate family and, and ministry position roles, and they tried to put a lot of guilt on us for not attending a denominational church, specifically because they feel that our children are missing out. They even discuss it with our kids who are interested in what we call lights, camera, action of a large church's children's program. 
we aren't sure how to handle this issue. I don't want to uh, go into a long explanation, but I also don't want to sound critical where they are because I don't feel that's helpful. So he was looking for any kind of input. And and all kinds of people added their, uh, you know, uh, two cents concerning uh, and 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 uh, they talk about uh, uh, different uh, you know uh, conclusions as to what people ought to be doing or should be doing in, in their references to. Uh, uh, well, how church should be operated, you know, and they're big into house church, you know, several families getting together and meeting in a uh, home, and they say that's the way the traditional church was operating, and that we should all operate in that like manner, and that this uh, congr- uh, the, the, this large uh church organizations organized church they kind of oppose any kind of organized church uh in their philosophy and i understand that they're looking at the institutional organizations calling themselves the church today and they want to separate themselves from that because they say there's something wrong with that that uh institution and I agree there's something wrong with that institution that we see representing itself as the church today. But what exactly is wrong with it? How does it not conform to the early church? And I pointed out in a brief statement to them that the early church was organized in small groups of ten families, like house churches, as Christ commanded that we were to sit down in these tens, hundreds, and thousands. He actually didn't command the people to do that. He commanded his disciples to make the people do that. And that's, and some people take umbrage with the fact that I point that out as one of the few places that Christ used the word commanded, or at least we see the word that he used translated commanded. And I give a rundown of all the words in the Greek language that appear in the Bible anyway that have a reference, maybe not all the words, but uh, uh, fundamentally the basic words that they translate or could translate into commanded. And I show which one he used and how it's normally used in the Greek so that we get a better understanding of why he commanded his disciples to make the people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Now, we also know that uh, uh, Christ commanded his disciples that you are not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other. He said that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he certainly intimated it many times in John. So in the Gospels, that should be just kind of fundamental that nobody should be exercised, no minister should be exercising authority one over the other in the, whatever this institution is that we call the church. So how would that operate? I mean, it certainly wouldn't have any need of a pope, you know, sending down regulations as to what we are to think and not think 
and it wouldn't have anything to do with pastors commanding that his disciples or his uh, followers or his congregants operate in a particular way. I mean, certainly he could say, well, you know, you shouldn't be committing adultery. (laughs) But that's not exercising authority. That's speaking the truth. But he could also say, thou shouldn't be coveting thy neighbor's goods through the power of the exercising authority of government. But all of a sudden, now we're going to get some kickback. People aren't going to like that. Because they want to be able to do that because they love the benefits they get by going to the men who exercise authority, the men of governments, because Jesus was specifically talking about the governments of the Gentiles, the princes, the rulers, the the people who are in charge in the Gentile governments who exercise authority one over the other. They call themselves benefactors. He, He makes that very clear in Luke. But they exercise authority. In other words, they don't give you anything as a benefactor. They don't give you any benefits, any of those wages of unrighteousness or rewards of unrighteousness. It's translated both ways in the King James Bible. The original Greek is translated both ways. One place they say rewards of unrighteousness. The other place they say wages of unrighteousness. Now, why, why they make that? Change, I, I'm not sure. I've looked at the syntax of the sentence. Uh, it could be because the repetition of the same statement in the text of the scriptures would lead you to the idea that these are the same thing and that it was mentioned more than once. And of course, covetous practices, which is that desiring of those wages of unrighteousness, those those benefits that come from men who exercise authority are covetous practices. And Peter makes it very clear that through such covetous practices that you would become merchandise. Well, how how would you be merchandise? You would be a slave. Now, a slave would consider merchandise property. So how how would you become this human resource or this property of others through covetous practices? Well, we explain that out in in dozens and dozens of articles, all related to biblical statements by the apostles, by Jesus Christ, that you're not to be, you know, by David, by Paul, who quoted David, saying, you know, what should have been for your welfare has become a snare. You know, and, and, and Paul talking about, you know, and Peter talking, uh, and, and and David talking about tables. And Jesus talking about tables. There's a table of which they cannot eat. You know, referring to those people who go to the benefactors who exercise authority. To the, the governments of the world. To, to get the free bread of Rome. You know, the welfare of Rome. You could you would sign up. You could get the welfare of the Pharisees too by signing up. By registering with the temple through your local synagogue. And the interesting thing about synagogue, which I I may make reference to later on, is that synagogues were basically ten families. Ten heads of families. The heads of the family, would ten of them, would get together and that would form a synagogue. That was common knowledge at the time. So, yeah, if you read in scriptures in the New Testament, you're not going to find a lot of 
references to sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, you do clearly see that Christ commanded that 5,000 men and their families all sit down in groups of ten. He clearly commands that his disciples make the people sit down in those groups of ten, which had to take a period of time. And this was at the time of the loaves and fishes. You can read it in Mark. Now, let's mention more than just in, in Mark 6. But it doesn't ha- it shouldn't have to be mentioned a bunch because we know that the Israelites were organized in the t- groups of ten, small groups of ten. Even Jethro suggested that they use these small groups of ten as a sort of a appeals court. You know, that if you can't settle the issue amongst your Ten family congregation, then you go up one level. And you settled it at the next level of tens. Because that's how they were organized. And they were organized that way probably before Moses even showed up on the scene. Because we know if even if you go all the way back to Nimrod, he was organizing uh, groups of people into tens, hundreds, and thousands. And uh, But he was doing it from the top down. And Moses did it from the bottom up. In other words, you decide what ten men you're going to get with. And you pick, eventually they were picking their ministers from a group of Levites who belonged to God. Who were the first ones to come out of the golden calf. They needed this extra institution. I mean, really, the only institution that was created directly by God was the institution of the family. You know, Adam and Eve and their children. That's that's the institution of God. The family. It's instituted by God and and the nature of God's creation. It makes sense for mankind to come together as husband and wife and produce children. And it works pretty good. If you also mix in things like love and forgiveness and patience and you know all these things we call virtue. But if you start taking some of those ingredients out, you're not going to get the same kind of cake. <laughs> you're, going to get, you're changing the recipe. It's going to change things. And of course, tyrants want to do that. They want to change things. So... You know, Paul and Barnabas needed the people organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands as Christ commanded, as the Moses did, as the Israelites did uh, for thousands of years. They were always organized into these small groups of ten. Uh, so anyway, I pointed that out and I left them a link to our page at Preparing You on the Tens. And I got a response back from somebody named Tim who's on this Facebook group, he he doesn't like what I say sometimes. I, I mean, I can't remember. You know, there's some people who don't like what I say, I think. There's some people do. I, I do get some likes from time to time on the things that I post on the group. But it's it's really difficult for people to realize that most all of Christianity is in a horrible state of apostasy. Even though Christ warned that the whole world would be deceived. Even the very elect would be deceived. If it were possible. Meaning, you know, like the 144,000 as an elect. 
group. I mean, God wants everybody to be saved. Jesus Christ came that you all might be saved. The whole world might be saved. But the whole world is not saved unless they repent, you know, and follow the ways of Christ. Not the ways that the modern church says are the ways of Christ, but the way Christ said it, you know. So, you know, when I refer to the modern church, I'm referring to a church instituted by men. You know, and I I don't know if that boot fits you and the group that you're with, because I don't know the group that you're with, but I know it fits an awful lot of people and an awful lot of denominations and an awful lot of churches are simply not doing what Jesus said to do. They are coveting their neighbor's goods through the agency of men who exercise authority. They do pray to the fathers of the earth for their daily bread. They don't, they say they are father. But if they actually need something to eat, they apply for an EBT card <laughs> you know, and social welfare, which is all provided by men who not only exercise authority one over the other, but by men who curse your children with debt, which we see every day in the news. Trillion dollars here, trillion dollars there, pretty soon you're talking about some real money. That is to be paid back by somebody through income tax. Because income tax actually doesn't pay it back, and that's not actually the goal. Income tax is to pay the interest on the debt. But as that interest rises, because the debt rises, the interest will go up and your income tax will go up. And eventually, you know, you're taxed from both directions. Not only a direct income tax, but also the indirect income tax we call inflation. You know, and that, that's that been exorbitant over the years. Like I pointed out, just probably last week, my folks bought a brand new house, you know, with solid oak floors and maple cabinets and two stories and brick fireplace and, you know, electricity, <laughs> dishes in the cupboard, the whole thing, for $3,500. That was 3500 equivalent to silver dollars, although they were using Federal Reserve notes at that time. You could go down to almost any bank and say, I would like this in coin, and they would give you silver coin. Either quarters or 50 cent pieces or dollars. And you could you could go down to a bank and literally, you might have to ask them in advance, but uh, get $3,500 in silver coin. You you could spend just silver coin. You know, 3,500, what is that, 3,500 ounces? What's it, 10 pounds of silver? Oh, no, it'd be more than that. It'd be almost 20 pounds of silver. 18, maybe. So, you could buy a house with 18 pounds of silver. <laughs> now, to buy 18 pounds, uh, what's 18 pounds of silver worth today? I have no idea. I don't know what the price of silver is per ounce, but... <laughs> It's uh, it's a lot more than a dollar per ounce. So, I mean, it'd be probably 15 times that. So, 15 times 18 pounds. You can do the math yourself. Or maybe you can't do the math yourself. I don't know. Evidently, like I said last week, uh, and, and this will come into what we're going to talk about through this next couple of hours, is that uh, Kate Brown signed a deal that you do not have to know how to read, uh, do math, or... Uh, any of these basic concepts of schooling in order to graduate from school in Oregon. 
You do not have to prove you can read or write or do math in order to graduate from. So what is the point? <laughs> it's just crazy. And, and she she sat down and signed this, and the news media is all there. And what are they saying about this? I mean, they actually say very little about it because, I mean, what could you say about that? Why are you sending kids to school if they don't have to learn to read or write? So what is the point? But anyway, so anyway, somebody, Tim, wrote back and he quoted, the early church was organized in small groups of ten families as Christ commanded. He says, where, where is the scripture for this? And he says, it is buried in your lengthy web pages, or page. And is one text stretched to another, tweaked to connect to another? No, no. Jesus commanded (laughs) his uh, apostles, uh, his disciples at that time. We didn't, they weren't called apostles at that time. They were called disciples because they were his students. They were learning from him. And he was a rabbi in the sense that he was a teacher. That's what rabbi kind of means, is a teacher. And he was commanding that his disciples make the people sit down in tens, hundreds, and thousands. And I guess that's buried also in the long text of the Bible, except for the fact that we see reference to that over and over again in the Bible. That uh, that that Jesus, you know, commanded that the people sit down in that tens, hundreds, and thousands. Actually, he says in the text, tens, hundreds, and fifties, not thousands, in that particular text. But, of course, it says fifties in that particular text because of the fact that we already ex- he are, was already explained that there were 5,000 men and their families. So, tens, hundreds, and fifties would end up bringing you to that total of 50, you know, 5,000 people, you know, 5,000 families. I don't know how many people it was. I mean, obviously it was at least 10,000 people because you got to have a wife to have a family and really you have to have at least one child so that would make it 15,000 people if they had one child a person because that's it's not a family until there's children. It's a couple until it until there's at least one child. And uh, so and then also if you understood historically that a family was the eldest father of a family, his married sons, unmarried sons, and daughters, and their children. That's one family, traditionally speaking. So, I mean, there could be twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 people, and they all had to organize because Christ commanded it. That's not buried just in my article. That's in the biblical text. Pay attention, <laughs> Tim. Anyway, we'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, yeah, you can go all the way back to uh, Exodus and uh, 
you know, 1825, and Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over people, rulers over thousands, rulers over hundreds, rulers over fifties, and rulers over ten. And uh, we've gone over that particular verse. I, I don't know if I've... Uh, and there's so much work to be done to get things cleared up in people's minds so that they understand what... uh was going on in the early church as well as what was going on in the Old Testament. Uh, the word rulers there, rulers over, there are different words in the Hebrew language for rulers. And uh, if you don't know which words they're using or which letters are in the words that they're using, you would think that that Moses was doing the exact same thing that Nimrod did because I can show you in text, I think it's on our article of, of concerning the tens of preparing you, that uh, Nimrod did exactly that same thing. I mean, if you read Exodus 18.25, cold in the English, not knowing really what was going on, what Moses was doing, because the primary command of Moses was to love your neighbor as yourself. And loving, loving your neighbor as yourself is not ruling over your neighbor. Moses and Jesus were in agreement when it comes to that, and in exercising authority one over the other. And there is just countless verses in the Old Testament and the New Testament that would tell you that. Although there is a great deal of distortion by ministers in their interpretation of the Old Scripture, and there is a great deal of confusion about some of the things that are being said in the Old Testament because they went to... Uh, the the Jews who had it wrong, the pharisaical approach of a lot of the Jews, I'm not going to say all Jews because all Jews are not the same. I mean, you can't even, you know, group. I don't like grouping people like Jews or by, you know, by their religion or by their race or by their national origin or anything. It's like saying all Irishmen are uh, ill-tempered. <laughs> You know, or or by the color of their head. You know, all redheads are this way. The reality is we are all individuals. And uh, we all come as individuals carrying some baggage and uh, ready to put some of it down and uh, ready to pick up other responsibilities, other burdens. And, of course, Christ talks about that. But he says, my burden is light. The burden of Nimrod now, that would be something else, you know. And the burden of Caesar, that would be something else. The burden of Pharaoh evidently became something else and became too great. Even though that burden was placed on them by Joseph, that 20% of their labor belonged to the government. That was placed on them by Joseph. But it was also, now who's to blame? Joseph? No, Joseph saved their lives. Because he brought them into Goshen, but at a price. But the price was paid because Joseph was working for the Pharaoh. And he was working for the Pharaoh. I mean, he had tremendous amount of leeway, evidently. But he was working for the Pharaoh because his brothers had sold him into bondage. So that Joseph's brothers, by the law of nature and nature's God, went into bondage. Now, when the people are going to come out of bondage, and Moses came to deliver them out of bondage, they don't just get delivered out of bondage. They had to do some things differently, and God arranged 
for the condition, the equality of condition, and I'm saying these phrases because I'm going to bring those in eventually in this, what may become a series. I've started a, we're, we're going to go to ne, uh, Nahum and Nehemiah and Habakkuk and all those guys too, but I'm still working on my notes in those <laughs> areas because there are so many layers. As we get farther and farther into the minor prophets, we're seeing that they're talking about the same thing over and over and over again. But some of them use different vocabulary. Some of them use the same vocabulary, but translators have translated it slightly different. So like, like I said with, you know, the rewards of unrighteousness and the wages of unrighteousness. Same words in the Greek. But they, for some reason or other, they translate it slightly different. And there may be an ill effect to that, but with the Holy Spirit, you can overcome that. But what I'm, I'm doing is I'm walking around the elephant in the room, which is the Holy Scriptures, and, and pointing out, you know, like, you say you're following Christ. You say that you're a believer in Christ. You say you love Jesus. But you're not doing what he said to do. You're not doing it in relationship to your daily bread. You're not doing it in relationship to religion. Jesus never said anything good about religion. At that time, he talked about the religion of the Pharisees was not evidently a good thing. It was a bad thing. And the Corbin of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect. It isn't until one of the apostles said, Something about pure religion that we actually hear religion in a good context. And that good to context of religion was that it takes care of the needy of society. You know, widows and orphans and people who fall on hard times. But it's only pure religion if it's unspotted by the world. And of course, there's again that word, you know, where they take a word like world and they translate a Greek word into world. It's not always translated into world. And there are four other Greek words they also translate into world. And that can create confusion. But it's very clearly that how does religion get spotted by the world? What world? By the planet? Does the planet spot your religion? (laughs) Does the age spot your religion? Because that's another word. You know, the word aeon is translated into world. And so it could be that the the times that we're in spots your religion. But that's not the word that's there. It's not Aeon. It's not inhabited places. It's not the planet. That None of those things spot your religion. The word they use there is constitutional order or system of government. According to your standard concordance, that word, world, means constitutional order or system of government. So somehow or other, your constitutional order or system of government can spot your religion. Well, how does it do that? You, the way, in, and specifically the religion, the aspect of religion where you're taking care of the needy of your society. You see, this is just should be a no-brainer for Tim or anybody else that if you're going to men who exercise authority one over the other 
men who force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare, you're not practicing pure religion. Your religion is spotted by the world, by that constitutional order or system of government. And of course, in America, since FDR, that's what they all are doing. You don't take even care of your parents. You do no more ought for your parents, which Jesus brings up. Because you've adopted the Corbin of the Pharisees by signing up for a system run by men who exercise authority one over the other, force the contributions of your neighbor to provide you with welfare. They don't actually have, you know, when they force those contributions, they're not actually taking that money and using it to take care of you. They're using it to take care of the debt you know, that they already had. Again, this is why we point out that Social Security was never solvent. Never, ever, 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 ever solvent. People have this idea, well, if the government could steal, stop stealing from the Social Security Trust Fund, then we would have enough money to take care of my Social Security. No, they wouldn't. Because they're not stealing it. There is no division of funds. There is no trust fund. This has been ruled over and over again by the Supreme Court. This is only in your imagination. Just like in, in Tim's imagination, he's a follower of Christ. Now, he might be, but I don't see any evidence of it. But I don't really know Tim. He's just a name on a, you know, I see a picture there on Facebook. And I may send him this show, this recording, if I remember when it becomes available. But uh, the reality is, is that uh, if you're coveting your neighbor's goods to the men who exercise authority one over the other and desiring the benefits of those men who call themselves benefactors who are really, in essence, the fathers of the earth, the patronuses of the earth, the paters of the earth, your sugar daddies. You're not following Christ if you're seeking those benefits. Because those benefits are the wages of unrighteousness, the rewards of unrighteousness, because it is unrighteous to covet your neighbor's goods. That should be a no-brainer. It should not be difficult for anybody to understand. But they don't get it. Why don't they get it? Well, I wrote another article on that. <laughs> Cognitive dissonance. They they just don't get it. It's like guys who think they're girls. They they have a dysphoria about understanding that they are guys. They're males. They're not females. And if they claim to be a female, that's gender appropriation. <laughs> that should be just as bad as cultural appropriation. Maybe even a little worse. But they don't see it as that. And I, I'm not picking on the people who have that dysphoria. I think the dysphoria is real. The same as it's it's real that Tim thinks that he's a Christian. That he's following Christ. Because that's that's one of the things that he eventually goes on to say. But he's not really following Christ. If he's going to the men who exercise authority one over the other and asking them to provide him with daily bread. Social Security doesn't give you anything without taking away from others. And it's not taking anything out of a trust fund. 
And there never was a trust fund. What it's doing every day, and we know it, just even CNN tells you this, is they're borrowing money against the future of your children's labor to provide you with these benefits. And then your children, of course, have to do no more ought for their parents. They don't have to take care of their parents. They don't have to provide for their parents. Because they got Social Security. As a matter of fact, I know a lot of children in their 40s and 50s that are living with their parents who are on Social Security. <laughs> so they not only don't provide for their parents, they they often say, yeah, we're there taking care of our parents. But they're actually there living off of their parents' Social Security check. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, trying to wash your hands in dirty water. You can't do it. So where am I going with this? Actually, I'm I'm taking you to the idea of public health. That's where I'm going to deal with most of this. Because that's... Not only have we abandoned taking care of our parents, virtually abandoned. I mean, some people say, oh, I help my parents out all the time. Yeah. How much help do you offer your parents and how much help comes to your parents through Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid? How much, you know, it's like the guys who told me that our church takes up a collection for the poor all the time. We're always giving to the poor. We have all kinds of programs to give to the poor. Okay, if if the aid you get, the public aid you get, Social Security is public aid, public school is public aid, Healthcare is public aid. Medicare, Medicaid, public aid. You know, welfare, public aid. All that's public aid. That's all coming from those men who exercise authority. That's from the governments of the world that are providing all these things. And they provide those by taking away from your neighbor and borrowing against the future of your children. I mean, that's just, again, another no-brainer. That's what we should probably call this (laughs) no-brainer. This program. Because that's what you're doing. That's how you take care of the needy of society. So you add all that up. Add up all that number, whatever figure you come out, and then divide it by the number of people that are in your congregation. And and then you come up with, what, you know, $12,000, $20,000, $40,000 per year. And you say, well, wait a minute, there's not, they don't have that much Well. Yeah, because they're borrowing. So yeah, you that number actually may be more than the income <laughs> of your congregation. <laughs> but that's because you know it costs six to twenty thousand dollars per student to educate your neighbor's kids. It shouldn't cost that much. I mean, we homeschooled our kids. It didn't cost us that much. It cost us a lot, not in dollars, but in time and energy. But you know, it, I think it was money well spent, time well spent. <laughs> you have to ask my kids. <laughs> but, uh I mean, they're all pretty successful. And they can all read and write <laughs> and do arithmetic, <laughs> which evidently you don't have to do in the Oregon schools anymore, <laughs> thanks to Kate <laughs> and her liberal agenda. So what is actually going on in, in the world today amongst the people to bring about the conditions, the the equality of conditions that we see coming about 
on a day-to-day basis in the news. You know, the homelessness, the drug addiction, the suicides, all these kind of terrible things. And I basically say, because all the people who say they're following Jesus are not actually following Jesus. They're not actually doing what Jesus said. And um, and Tim thinks there's only one quote in the New Testament or even in the Bible about sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. You know, it's, it's the same that we had a guy who was criticizing this ministry, me partic- particularly. And, it, I mean, his stuff is still up there. I can't remember what his name is. But, uh, and he says that nowhere in the Bible does it talk about a network. What? <laughs> tens, hundreds, thousands of the network. There certainly was a network where Paul was at and Barnabas were able to bring relief all over the Roman Empire. And they were certainly bringing relief during what were dearths, depressions, famines. And they were bringing it to Christians. Well, Rome was bringing it to Christ, uh, bringing it to the people as well. And when bringing it to Christians, because Christians would not eat of that table. That should be really clear. That you don't get your daily bread from the fathers of the earth. You get your daily bread from your Father in heaven. And the way you get your daily bread from your Father in heaven is you gather together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, like they did at the loaves and fishes. To provide for one another through faith, hope, and charity. That's the way. That's the way of Christianity. If you're not doing that, you're not following the way. And if you're not following the way, you're not following Christ. And you may claim to love Him, but you're not doing what He said. You're doing what Nimrod said. You're doing what Saul eventually led the people into. You've elected leaders, rulers, who are going to fix things and make things right. I mean, that's that's what they did when they elected Saul to be their king. They wanted Saul to fix things and make things right. They wanted They wanted to take their responsibility to fix things and make things right and give it to Saul. Well, when they gave Saul that responsibility, they also gave Saul... That power. Well, where did that power reside before it was given to Saul? It resided with the people. With the fathers of each household. With the fathers of each family. The Romans called this potestas. They actually called it also imperium. Looking at it from different sides. There's potestas is the power. And imperium is... There were two kinds of imperium. Domestic and foreign. Imperium. You know, and the Imperium was to protect you from foreign invasion. Well, that's what they did with the emperors first. Emperor, that's where you get the word Emperor Imperium, is that they they gave the Emperor the power to protect the people from foreign invasion. And of course, he actually, because of the things he chose to do, such as forcing the offerings of the people, he made them vulnerable to foreign invasion and eventually Israel was conquered. And America, in their constitution, which is not a biblical document, doesn't follow the Bible. We've explained that many times, and we explain it in books that we have free online. 
books and articles, or book in articles. It actually, I could say books and articles, because it's partially explained in the, uh, the Kingdom Come and, and the Covenants of the Gods, as well as also in Higher Liberty. But in Contracts, Covenants, and Constitutions, we specifically address the U.S. Constitution and how it is not a biblical document. Because the Bible is very clear on the five things that you are to put into a constitution if you decide to have a, somebody who can exercise authority one over the other as a ruler of your society. Now, those five things limit the power, which is the point of the U.S. Constitution, is to limit the power of government. They are not in the U.S. Constitution. So, therefore, the U.S. Constitution by default, cannot be a biblical document. It's not even a Christian document. Now, it's a, it's a modern Christian document. And I'm not picking on it. It's a pretty good document as, as constitutions go. It's just not biblical. It's not following what God said to put down in that constitution. If you want to know more about that, you can go to preparingyou.com. And, or hisholychurch.org and look up Contracts, Covenants, and Constitutions. You can find copies of the book at His Holy Church. We have the copies on hisholychurch.org. And, and if you want to get a hard copy, you can buy them. But we give it away for free. I don't know how many thousands and thousands of people have downloaded it. But just because you download the book and get more information doesn't mean that you're following Christ. You're only following Christ if you repent of the wrong way that Christ said not to go and start going the right way, seeking, because that's that's part of the commandment of repenting. If we want to call that a command, because it certainly is given as a command, it's worded as a command, they just don't use the word commanded. But he said, seek ye first, you know, repent. I mean, change your thinking. That's what repent means doesn't mean sorry. It means change your thinking. Now, you might change your thinking because you're sorry. You were thinking the wrong way. Like Tim is thinking the wrong way. Or seems to be. He may be just deceived. I don't know. I don't know anything about Tim's heart. But uh, he's not thinking clearly. If he thinks it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods to the men who exercise authority one over the other, who... They call themselves benefactors, but they're only giving you what they took away from your neighbor, which is clearly a covetous practice. No-brainer. Not complicated. Stated very quickly, shortly, without a big, long essay. Evidently, complains about the length of our essays. And I know they get long. They're covering a lot of territory. and they're, they're walking all the way around the elephant in the room, which is the apostate church. See, home churches, they, they see there's something wrong with the, the modern church. And, and they're right about a lot of things that they see that are wrong about the modern church. But if you don't walk all the way around the problem, you're not going to see the wholeness of the problem and you may end up settling for a home church which becomes just a social club of backscratchers who make each other feel good because they say, yeah, we all love Jesus. But the proof that you love Jesus is that you're doing what he says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Why do you say you love me if you don't keep my commandments? These are, that's all in the text. You know, it's not hidden in the text. It's in the text. You know, most of the things that are hidden, they're hidden because people don't want to look at them. They don't want to see them. So what's 
with that. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, they got lots of excuses, but that's not the way it works. So, anyway, we have at Preparing You a whole article on tens, hundreds, and thousands, and you can look at that. But uh, just looking at, you know, Tim's comments, is, so it's not buried. It's in there. And it's not the only quote in there. And all the other things that you say it's buried in are all the other quotes that are suggesting that this is the way it was. And, and, uh, and he refers to it as a bunch of twisted and assumed rhetoric claimed to be as Christ commanded. But Christ did command that his disciples make the people sit down in these groups of hundreds and thousands in ranks and we explain all that. So it's not a secret just because you don't pay attention to it and you don't do it. But anyway, I sent him some more information so that he would know it's not just me who says this and we'll talk about that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So anyway, I wrote back to Tim just minutes before the show started and so I'll read to you what I wrote. We laid the groundwork already for this. And again, where we're going with this is public health. Because that's actually something that was referenced in the New Testament. That we are, as the church, we have to be concerned with your health. And I'm not telling you exactly where. <laughs> you should already know where it says that. But uh, uh, that is a concern of the church. And we want to turn this concern into action. And it is required for us to turn that concern into action by requiring that you sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Because if we are disciples of Christ, as ministers of the church, appointed a kingdom by Christ, a, a kingdom in the sense of a form of government, and the church is defined as one form of government, then we have to do it the way Christ said to do it. And he said that we had to command the people to organize themselves into the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And the truth is, you can't do this. You can't do what the early church was doing unless you do that. And Tim hasn't figured that out yet because Tim's okay with going to men who exercise authority and force his neighbors to contribute to his welfare. And he's okay, evidently, to some degree at least, with those men borrowing against the future of his children and grandchildren so that he can have benefits today. And if he's not okay with that, then he should join a congregation of ten, network together with hundreds, and that worked together with thousands so that they can become the pure religion, social welfare of Christianity instead of the impure religion of social welfare through men who exercise authority. And so then he would become eligible at the table of the Lord to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which is that which is willingly sacrificed by his neighbor for his welfare. 
instead of that which was taken by force or by suffocation from his neighbor through men who exercised authority. Now, I used a couple of symbols there so that you can kind of put it together. Uh, but maybe Tim's going to think I'm just stretching from different directions. But it's really simple. And I, I tell Tim, I understand that you do not want to admit that your assumptions are in error. Your assumption that it's okay to apply for benefits from men who exercise authority who are only going to give you benefits by taking away from your neighbor or from the future of your neighbor's children. And then I, I go on and write, there is not a lot of repetition of the explanation of the tens in Scripture because it was not needed. Now, when I refer to the tens, it doesn't even use the word tens in the New Testament to describe this tens, hundreds, and thousands. It, it, but it's clearly there. But they don't use the word T-E-N-S. So if you looked it up in the concordance, you wouldn't even find it. But it's very clear that that is the way the early church was organized. And I go on to tell them that the reason they don't have that is Israel had been organized in the tens before Jethro. I referenced many historians that recorded the fact that this was the way the church was organized. And there's all kinds of reason to believe that they were organized, even without those historical references. And uh, that through this tens, hundreds, and thousands, this network, they were able to provide not only a local daily ministration, but what you clearly see as an international relief during historical dearths and famines in Acts. This is what we see Paul and Barnabas and Timothy and they're, they're bringing money and funds from one area to another area. They're bringing them by ship with cargoes and everything else to provide need for Christians who are not going to go and apply at the Roman temples. The Roman temples were government buildings. That's where you went to get your Roman welfare. There was a building actually right next to the temple. The different temples for different purposes. But if you wanted to get your free bread for today, we we all heard about this in history. Unless, of course, you've been going to Kate Brown's educational forums. <laughs> you probably haven't heard this history. And I don't want to, like, Kate Brown didn't stop teaching everybody history. She just says that you can graduate without knowing anything or being able to read or write or do math. But for a long time, and we wrote about this, spoke about this on broadcasts going way back years and years, how they were taking history out of the schools. Now they're putting it back in, but it's fake history. It's not real history. So, like I say, before they dumb down your children, they dumb down your parents' children. And in fact, this has been going on so long that they dumb, dumb down your great-grandparents' children. <laughs> this is a gradual process. And the purpose of it is so that the whole world would be deceived, even the very elect. But with the true Holy Spirit, this, might, this all becomes a no-brainer. This is just obvious. Paul is bringing relief to people who are not going to go to the Roman temples to apply for the free bread of Rome, which was not very efficient anyway because it was filled with graft and corruption, which we've discussed many times from Nero on. 
that they were pilfering the, the temple treasuries. And, and, of course, Constantine saw the same thing. And he finally decided to emulate Christians. Not completely, but to do something similar to what Christians were doing. And he started the Church of Constantine, which became the Roman Church. Even the Roman Church, I can show you case law where the Roman Church claims that they have existed since Constantine. <laughs> Wait a minute, I thought they existed since Christ. Well, they'll they'll claim that too, but the reality is is that you're only the apostolic church established by Christ if you're actually doing what the apostles were doing. And of course, the apostles were not exercising authority one over the other, so have no fear of a truly apostolic church exercising authority over you and dictating to you what to do in your local congregations because they don't have that power. Because they they can't exercise authority. Now they can recognize that you're doing what Christ said to do or not, but that's on the individual basis, and you have to figure. See, the purse strings of true Christianity is in the hands of each family, the elders that are sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. If there's going to be sharing amongst you, like John the Baptist said, that's is the way you have to do it. Do not do it by force, which is the way modern Christians do it. They 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 elect men who force their neighbors to contribute to their welfare. But John the Baptist said, no, you don't do it by force. If you have two coats, you share. You do the same in meats. If you have extra, share. And, of course, we see 150 A.D., you know, just, just a little over 100 years after the apostles, Justin the Martyr is saying, we meet every week. And those that have shares with those that don't have enough. And he's saying this to explain to the emperor how Christians do it. Because the emperor does it by taxing people and selling slaves and, and conquering nations and what have you. And they provide free bread that way. That's the way the emperors of Rome did it. That's the way Caesar did it. That's the way even now we know Pharaoh didn't do that at the beginning. He provided because he had the insight to provide by building up a stock that he was going to be able to help with the famine that was coming. And, you know, we tell you there's a famine coming. But I don't have the resources of the Pharaoh. So, but... That's the way the church operates, is the resources of the church are the people. And we don't sit up here all the time asking people to donate to us. We, we're we telling people to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands because that's where Christ started. He commanded that we tell people to do that. We actually make them do that before there's going to be any distribution of loaves and fishes. And so we can assume, like the story of the virgins... That if they don't do that, if they don't sit down on the tens, hundreds, and thousands, and then they want to come to the wedding feast or whatever, when they knock, we don't have to let them in. Because it's very clear by their spirit, they did not care enough about their neighbor to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And so there, for them, there will be no distribution of loaves and fishes. Because they would not hear the cries 
of their neighbor. And so they're knocking and they're crying out. It won't be heard. And there's there's numerous references to that. You know, because, you know, you didn't listen to God back with Samuel 8. You know, First Samuel 8. He's not going to hear you. He's not going to hear your cries. Because you wouldn't hear the cries of your neighbor. This is why you sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands is so that you can hear the needs of your neighbors and answer them in a way that strengthens them. This is, this is the way. Always was the way. So I went on, there were other people who commented, some defending the idea of the tens, some not, uh, that you weren't a synagogue until there were at least ten families. You weren't counted as a synagogue. But you have to remember at that particular time, the Pharisees were running the government of Israel and even the temple that was built by Herod and the Pharisees. And it was built with the surplus that they were able to acquire because you signed up and then you had to pay in. That's that's the system set up by Herod and the Pharisees. And that was the system that was making, that's what filled their treasury there's, there's several words in the New Testament that are translated tre- treasury, gastaphon, and even the word Corbin is translated treasury. But tre- Corbin actually means sacrifice, but of course the sacrifice of the people is how you fill up the treasury. But always in the Old Testament, the sacrifice of the people were free will offerings. When they were forced by government, like Saul did, where he forced a sacrifice, that was making the word of God to none effect. That was going to destroy his kingdom. That's going to destroy your government, whether you're in Australia or in the United States or in Brazil or any. If you're forcing the offerings of the people to take care of the public health, the health, education and welfare of the people, you're destroying your society. You're destroying the fabric of your society because you will be degenerating the individual and the one institution that God did create from the beginning, which was the family. And you see it now with all the the things that are going on in the world. And so anyway, I also quoted to him, uh, just this is just one quote. There's all kinds of quotes. Some people may have an objection to quoting Professor Rush Dooney, but he was a professor and he did write some very interesting stuff. And he had a book, The World Under God's Law, The Church Under God's Law. That's the long name of the book. And he describes the congregations Paul was setting up. To this day, at least amongst the Jews, all it takes to form a synagogue is ten elders. Ten men rather than constitute enough because He's using the word elder. The reason I originally quoted this is because elders were the heads of families. They weren't offices of the church. They were heads of families. And they took men who were elders, who were heads of families, and they appointed them to do certain jobs for the church. And the job of the church was to take care of the needy of society through the free will offerings of the people. If we're going to listen to John the Baptist and Jesus Christ... And Paul, who all uses the word charity, although most of the time when the Greek word charity is used by Jesus Christ, we translate it love. And I don't really have a problem with that, except for the confusion it causes. Paul uses it and they translate it charity. You may 
think that they're using different words. They're using the same word. But anyway, he goes on to say that these ten men that form the synagogue, he says, they constitute enough for one ruler and without any rabbi called, they constitute a synagogue. So they have no rabbi there. Now, again, the word rabbi means teacher, but at that particular time, rabbi had become, because of the influence of the Pharisees and men like Herod, kind of rulers of the synagogue. And even Rashtuni, when he says one ruler, again, this is why I pointed out earlier in the show that there are several different words that are translated ruler. They're very similar words. One is Shin Rash Rash, and the other is Shin Rash. Now, even in the reference I made to Justin the Martyr, when he refers to their congregations were those who'd have share with those that don't have enough, the way in which they did that was they took what they had extra to share and they gave it to what is translated from Justin the Martyr as the president of the congregation. Well, now, if I say president, you think I'm talking about a ruler. Because today, the word president means ruler in the minds of most people. But it actually means the first citizen. Or the primary one. And the primary elder in a congregation of ten men uh, was these men are sitting equally. There's an equality because these are free assemblies. So each of these ten men that have gathered together, they're going to pick a ruler, using the word loosely here, a president, a first person to share their contributions with. And he will have the responsibility of distributing those amongst the needy of the ten family congregation. But he is not actually a member of the synagogue. He is not a member of that synagogue. He is not one of the ten elders of that synagogue. Because he is actually gathered in a congregation of ministers. Of of men who serve ten elders in other congregations. That's his congregation. He's outside, in essence of the ten elders that formed this original free assembly, which was called synagogues by the Jews. But he is in a synagogue of men who also serve ten families. This is the tens hundreds. If you add that up, you got a hundred. <laughs> you actually have a hundred and ten. But you have a hundred. These ten men serve a hundred men and their families. And so, if, but they talk amongst themselves. If one congregation has a great deal of need and they cannot meet that need because of economic dearth in their area, they can call upon other congregations. And they do that through this network of ministers. Now, those ten ministers of a hundred, they pick a minister. And he will gather, he won't be a part of their congregation. He will gather with ten other men who serve, ten men who serve a hundred. So this is, this is the ranks that they talk about. And we talk about in the article of the tens, 
why they use words like that we see translated company and translated rank and what words they're using. But this is basically a network, but it's all free will. You know, there, there could be one of these ministers who's just a whiner and complainer, and he has a bunch of whiners and complainers in his congregation. And because they're applying and, and complaining, they would get the bulk of the funds that are available for charity. But that isn't the way you decide it. You decide it basically on the Holy Spirit, but you may have to do a little bit of research to find out where is the greatest need. Where will this do the best? Your body does this every day. You start running, digestion will shut down, and blood will flow to your legs. You start lifting heavy weights with your arms, more blood will flow to your arms. You know, and other parts of your body that have been using that blood will shut down temporarily so that you can do this physical exercise. Same in the body of Christ. But the choices of these elders who are organizing themselves in the tens, hundreds of thousands remain with individuals. The same as it does in the individual cells of your body. So they have the, these ten men sitting in groups and, and ten groups sitting in hundreds and and uh, those ten of those hundreds sitting in thousands, etc., etc. And this is what Rashtuni is explaining. Ten heads of households conduct the service. That's the way it was. So he's telling you that. I'm quoting here. That's the way they did it. The apostles, as they, in this, I'm quoting here also, the apostles, as they went out, established Paul, for example, church after church in one place after another, and he appointed and ordained elders, and he moved on. Did the service stop when he left? No. They continued. The elders carried on the services of the elders. And the elders are the heads of each of those families. There's equality. When you're in a free assembly, then you have equality. If you're in a socialist system, you don't have equality. And I'm bringing that up because I'm going to tie this all together. If there were 20 families, there would be two elders, 30 families... Three elders, now that, now he's misusing, there's three elders appointed to being president. And I use the translated word president. I mean, words, this connection to elder, elders. He's using elders as if that's an office. And of course, none of these offices are offices of authority of men one over the other because Christ forbid that. They're offices of men who you give you ten ten heads of families, each give a contribution. One gives a hundred dollars, one gives a thousand dollars, one gives ten dollars. They all give it to the man they chose to be the minister of their congregation. He now has authority over that money because it's freely given, it's entirely given up. Most congregations today, Protestant congregations, they don't like that. They will give it to the church and then they run around and get on the board of directors. They call themselves elders and then they make decisions for all the other heads of families. 
in their congregations because they're not organizing the tens, hundreds, thousands. They want 500 family congregations. Thousand family, 5,000 family congregations. That's not the way Christ was doing it. That's not the way he was setting it up. That's not the way he commanded to set it up. Then you're not following what he commanded if you're doing that. You can do that. You're just not following Christ. So, elder again, this is why it's so important why we wrote the article on elders, which you can read it, preparing you, and, and it has elderchurch.org. And elder, always the word, a presbyter was the head of a family. And he appointed heads of families. Why, why do we know he appointed? Because that's what he's saying. And because, you know, Timothy even talks about this. Titus talks about it. That ministers, bishops are supposed to be the heads of families. It doesn't mean that you can't be a minister of the church. But these are ministers that are appointed over the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Not to rule over them, but to be responsible for the practice of pure religion. Because Christians aren't going to go to the men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. They just won't do that because they know that's a covetous practice, which is why I said that's a no-brainer at the beginning. You can't can't be going to men who force the contributions of your neighbor and say that you're operating like Christ. But you may have to go to somebody. And that's why Moses called out the Levites. And Jesus called out the apostles and said, I'm going to appoint to you a kingdom. He's talking to the little flock. He says, to my little flock, it's my pleasure I'm going to appoint unto you a kingdom. He had already said that he was going to take it away from the Pharisees. And, of course, Herod was already dead. Nobody sat in the throne in Jerusalem. Herod, Antipas, he didn't sit in the throne in Jerusalem. He wanted to. But nobody sat in the throne. They didn't know who to put there. Because the kingdom was divided into three parts. It was Philip and Herod Antipas. And nobody sat in Jerusalem. Until Jesus came in and they said, Hail, I have son of David. And he starts going in the temple, giving commands and orders. Telling people to do this, not do that. Firing the money changers. You're fired, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired, and you're fired, and you're fired too. And he turned over their responsibilities to men who were chosen to the tens, hundreds, and thousands. That should be a no-brainer, but that may be that may be a stretch for people like Tim. Because he's got his welfare. He's got his social security. He's got a source for his free bread. It's just through the men who exercise authority one over the other. The men who rung up trillions and trillions of dollars worth of debt. Cursed his children with that debt. That's where, that's the table he's eating at. I assume. I have to admit, I assume, because these people on Facebook, I don't know who they are. I mentioned his name. So you can find them if you want. But that's not the way Christianity should be working. So, you know, I pointed these things out. And, you know, the apostles, as they went out and established Paul, for example, the church after church after church. And actually, that's a misuse of the word, too. He was 
that people were establishing their congregations, but he was establishing them in the sense of connecting them with the rest of the church because they were going to need that in the days to come. Armies and pestilence and everything, you're going to need that too. But we'll talk more about that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, one of the things that uh, I, I saw this week uh, was uh, Dr. Shiva talking at a cyber symposium set up by Mike Lindell. And if you, you probably put that in, Dr. Shiva. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Adure, uh, A-Y-Y-A-D-U-R-A-I. He's very outspoken, very abrupt sort of guy. Very smart guy. And he, he was talking about government with big tech destroys free speech. And he's actually saying it's not big tech, it's big government that's the problem. But he said a number of interesting things in this talk. And you can look it up. You probably have to look it up on Rumble. I don't think you'll find it on YouTube. Because <laughs> he's, he's been uh, banned on YouTube. But it's, he's got a lawsuit that he's taking into court on his own and without a lawyer. And he said that he couldn't find a lawyer to represent him, so he just decided to do it himself. And he says that that's turning out to be a good thing. <laughs> so anyway, but he's a smart guy. Not always right, but, you know, worth listening to uh, if you can get past his demeanor because he's so direct, so abrupt. But, uh, you know, it gives you great opportunity for forgiveness when you're dealing with a, somebody like that. But he was uh, bringing up certain things including equality. And uh, I'm putting together so, so that I can bring you to this idea of public health and what we need to do as a church to provide this health uh, for the people who are willing to sit down and gather in free assemblies, not exercising authority one over the other, but taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity because they actually love one another, not just sit in a pew and warm it and say they love one another, but then actually go to men who exercise authority to get anything they actually want. So, which is not as contrary to Christianity. But, you know, people say, well, how could all these Christians be doing contrary to what Christ said? Are they? Well, Christ said they would be. He said many would be doing not only, they'd be workers of iniquity, and he was going to have to, even to the last minute, they'll be saying that, yeah, we're followers of you, Jesus. You know, look at all the great things we've done. He says, get ye from me, you workers of iniquity. And he didn't say a few. He said many. And, and in other places in the Bible, we see that the whole world would be deceived. So the idea, anybody who wants to make their argument, well, all the Christians, that's what Tim was saying, you know. Oh, they don't see what you're saying. Well, Christ said they wouldn't. <laughs> the question that didn't have nothing to do with what nothing to do with if what I'm saying is true or not. You know, God doesn't rule God the kingdom of heaven is not a democracy. You can't change the Ten Commandments with a vote. You are not allowed to covet your neighbor's goods without making the word of God the none effect. You can you can do all the singing you want, that's not going to change anything. So anyway, uh, Dr. Shiva, which is easier to say than his last name, but uh, and that's usually what he goes by. He said, the real problem is public health. And we need to understand that the real problem is public health. And, and make an accounting of that. 
But uh, I'm afraid that most people aren't going to see that. And uh, certainly Tim doesn't see it. But it's not public health itself. It's the fact that public health has been put into the hands of men who exercise authority one over the other. Now, I have a lot to reveal on this. and There's a lot of opportunities coming up on this, but I we can't get into it yet because I'm just laying the groundwork right now. He also points out, he says, Americans have become fat, dumb, and happy. But, of course, that's wasn't that the predi- prediction of the Great Reset, P? You know, Mr. Uh, Schwab, uh, that we would own nothing and be happy. <laughs> but we'd also be fat and dumb. And, of course, we see the same spirit coming from Kate Brown, uh, where she's now signing things into law that you don't have to know how to read, write, or do math in order to graduate. So she certainly advocates advocates being dumb. And, you know, people talk about COVID killing so many people. That kills way more people every year than COVID. Uh, but we don't have a pipe police. We have mask police going around making sure everybody's wearing a mask. And you can take it off when you're overeating at the restaurant and you get ordering that second second piece of pie and you're weigh three hundred pounds. Uh you could take off your mask to do that. But we're interested in public health. So we want you to wear a mask at all times. You know, because mask mandates have raised their ugly head again. There's some pushback, but people don't realize the solution isn't just pushing back or getting angry or shaking your fist at government or blaming it on. It's your fault because you didn't sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands like Christ and you aren't taking care of your public health yourself. And I, I'm just straining, like, I want to share with you what you can do about that. We know what we can do about it here to some degree. We're learning as we go. But I don't think you're ready to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God because you haven't repented yet. And you certainly haven't been seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness because you're not sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands in order to practice pure religion. You're still going around with your dogmas and your doctrines and you're shaking your fists and your political parties and you're not trying to create the bands that bind a free society which we know is love and charity and forgiveness. And, you know, if forgiveness, if you were really good at forgiveness, you'd have no problem sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. <laughs> but you always got something, well, I can't forgive that guy, I'm not going to sit down with him. We're not asking you to sit in people's lap. Just to sit down, organize yourselves in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. It, you know, we used to make a joke all the time that every village is required to have a village idiot. We used to tell somebody this that was in our local community, still in the local community. And there was a there was a guy that everybody picked out as the you know, kind of village troublemaker. He wasn't really an idiot, but he was a troublemaker. And uh, and this one guy wanted to get rid of him, get him out of the community, at least for a period of time. He actually forgot all about that actually became kind of his ally and I teased him I said you know if you if you get rid of the village idiot somebody's got to take on that role and I think you're next in line <laughs> so, and I'd get away we were just 
kidding around, joking, you know. It was before everybody was triggered and we could do those kinds of things. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, we're, we have this idea that we only want to sit down with saints. Well, if you're only going to sit down with saints, why do you think they're going to let you sit down with them if that's the rule of thumb? That is not the rule of thumb. The rule of thumb is to love one another. And loving one another includes forgiving one another. It doesn't mean you can't tell somebody they're being an idiot. You certainly can. There's freedom of speech in the kingdom of God. You, you, you're supposed to tell people when they're being foolish or going headed for a cliff. That's your responsibility. But you have to do it in love, not in contempt or anger. You know, when I tell somebody, when they say, well, I'm gay, I say, no, you're not gay. And I say, oh, no, I am gay. I says, no, you just think you're gay. It's not, it's not a thing that you are or not. It's you are operating under the assumption that you're gay. I get it. I accept that. You think you're gay. It doesn't make you gay what you think. Your think, thinking does not alter reality any more than a democracy can change the Ten Commandments. You can't do that. It's not within your power. You know, you can dress up and wear women's clothes. It doesn't make you a woman. You can have your body mutilated. It, you, a woman cannot make herself a man, and a man cannot make herself a woman. That's that's gender appropriation. You can go to great lengths to do it. I mean, like that girl who, uh, I don't know if she took some kind of medication or she just put on, you know, tanning makeup or whatever, but she had her hair dyed and kinked and all this because she identified as a black person. I mean, there was some guy who uh, recently... Uh, I guess he identifies as a Korean. I think maybe even a Korean of a different gender. And so he's paid thousands of dollars to have operations to make him look like a Korean. He's not a Korean. <laughs> he's, I don't know what nationality, he's a white guy, but, uh, so he's, you know, I don't know, he's mid-European or Scandinavian or what, but you can make yourself look that way. Actually, he makes himself look kind of hideous, but, uh, uh, he certainly doesn't look Korean to me, but uh, I see what he's trying to do. But making yourself look like something doesn't make you that thing. That's dysphoria if you think so. And it's the same way with Christianity. If you join a church, a congregation, a denomination, you go there, sing the songs, you read the Bible, you recite the phrases, you say, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but then you go down to men who exercise authority and you say, will you please take away from my neighbors so I can have more stuff? So I can have free education for my kids. So that I can have health care for my parents. And social security for my parents so that I don't have to do anything to support them. You're not a Christian. You're not practicing pure religion. That's just, that's just a no-brainer. You're just not doing it. But anyway, back to Dr. Shiva. It, he does say, I thought that's, this jumped out at me. He says, the answer is not cursing the darkness but we need to become the light that rings true to me i don't know if he really understands how much so but he does come up with a lot of stuff so i don't know he he doesn't seem to be far from the kingdom except for his demeanor <laughs> he's very direct but i i couldn't help but think maybe at times that uh just judging by the things that he said he may not be far from the personality of peter who was kind of gruff at times 
outspoken, but occasionally put his foot in his mouth. But he's just the messenger. What's the message? And he says the way to go forward from here is a bottom-up movement. That's what Christ was doing with the tens, hundreds, and thousands. The ten families, the ten elders of those families gathered together. That's the bottom. But they're not picking men who exercise authority. They're not electing rulers. Shim, resh, resh. They're, they're electing men to do a job for them. But those men belong to God. Another whole topic we won't go off on. And But if you do everything that Christ said, then, yeah, those men would belong to God. They wouldn't belong to the state. They would be separate from the state. They wouldn't be, belong to the gods of the world. They would have to belong to the God of heaven. How do you get to that point? Well, that, like I said, that's another long story we won't get into right now. But he says this only way out is this bottom-up movement in Christ, of course. You know, the truth is Jesus knew that better than most. Now, that bottom-up movement. Now, let's this, this digress just a, a little bit. If you're getting appointed a government, that, which is what Jesus said, I'm going to appoint unto you a kingdom. And he says, I appoint unto you a kingdom. So I assume that he appointed them a government. But he also qualified that with just not to exercise authority one over the other. You're not to be the resh resh rulers. You're not ruling over the people. God never gave dominion of man over man. Now they had that in Cain's city-state and in Nimrod's Babylon and in Caesar's Rome. But that that's created by men. That's not created by God. Now, God allows you to create those situations, but he tells you what's going to happen. Is they're going to take and take and take and take and take and take, and when you cry out, I'm not going to hear you. So, that that's all explained. Again, that should be a no-brainer. God did not establish governments. He allowed you to establish governments. In other words, he allows you to sin, but not without repercussions. The repercussions are built in. And, and Paul points this out, or Peter points it out. To covetous practices, you will be made merchandise. If you go the covetous practices way, you will become human resources and you will belong. You'll be servants and slaves of men. You know, you'll have to work half the year with no pay whatsoever. All the money you make goes to the government. That's a 50% income tax bracket. That's slavery. Which takes us back to the, one of the very first quotes that I mentioned. None are more hopelessly enslaved than those who think they are free. You think you're free. You're not free. Tim's not free. He's a slave in Egypt. He's returned to the bondage of Egypt. God told Moses not to go back there. Moses told the people not to go back there. The golden cap was a step back in that direction. We know what happened there. Or at least we know what happened. I don't know if you know what happened there. If you think that the ground opened up and swallowed the golden calf in an earthquake uh, where fire came flying out, you don't know what happened. <laughs> you know what happened in the movie, but you don't know what happened in real life. So, uh, anyway, 
back to uh, Dr. Shiva. So he, and, and this movement from the ground up, which was what Christ started, what Moses started, where people had to take care of one another. And Christ clearly started this at the story of the loaves and fishes. And the fact is, I, I believe wholeheartedly he was already doing it. It's just that was kind of a big moment where you had 5,000 people who really got organized. And, of course, they did the same thing at Pentecost. You know, anybody who got the baptism of Jesus Christ were going to be cast out of the social welfare system, run through the government temple of the Pharisees, by the Pharisees, and basically for the Pharisees. You're going to be cast out. Widows, orphans, we we see that in the text, right there in the text. It should be, again, no-brainer. The blind man. He he's professing Christ. You profess Christ, you're going to be kicked out. They go to his parents. They say, "Okay, well, your son is professing Christ." They know that, and they say this right in the biblical text that you're, we're going to be cast out of the synagogue, which is the tens, hundreds, and thousands. If we proclaim Christ, which is proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Anointed, Jesus as the King. And so they refused to because they don't want to get kicked out. So we know that everybody who did got kicked out of that social welfare scheme. Well, those parents weren't going to depend upon their blind son to take care of them. They had taken care of him. They were going to depend upon the temple to provide them with their social welfare. And they didn't want to get kicked out. But the blind guy, he said, I can't do, I had to profess the truth. And he was kicked out. And we see Jesus going and finding him. And he doesn't even recognize Jesus because he never saw Jesus. But he continues to profess Christ and Christ says, well, I am him, come with me. And he brings him into the kingdom right then and there. And so I'm sure he learned another trade. Maybe he learned to sew tents with Priscilla and Aquila and Paul. (laughs) Who knows? He got a job in the Christian community. Because he was no longer welcome in the community of the Pharisees. But after Pentecost, thousands, thousands of heads of families, which means tens of thousands of people, each day were joining the Christian community and being cast out. And the apostles now, because they have... The constituency, I don't know if it was the majority of the constituency or not, but it was a substantial constituency in, not only in Jerusalem, but these, a lot of these people were from other parts of the world. We know that from the text. They now could work daily in the temple, in the temple, in the government building, rightly dividing bread from house to house in a system of daily ministration. Funded entirely by charity, not by force, like the Pharisees were using, like Herod was using. You're not doing that. You gather together in your churches and you take up a collection and maybe, maybe, if you're lucky, that connection will equal 10% of the welfare consumed by your congregation. Because... Public school is welfare. Social security is welfare. There's no entitlement. It says so right in the Social Security Act. If you didn't read it, that's not my fault. 
I, you know, I'm the I'm the only guy I think I know that read it. I think somebody else told me they went and read it. <laughs> so there may be another guy who read it. But generally speaking, I'm the only guy I know who actually read what you're agreeing to. But uh, the fact is, Social Security, Welfare, Medicare, Medicaid, public school, all these things, those are non-charitable benefits provided by a government that exercises authority one over the other. So you add that number up and you add up what you guys collected in your congregation and your claim to be a first century church does not cut muster. And until until you at least get to 51% of the needy of your society taken care of by faith, hope, and charity, the needs of your society taken care of by faith, hope, and charity, your claim to be the church does not cut muster. And the only way that you can get to that 51%, and I want you to get to 100%, is to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and start caring about one another. Even those people you don't even see start casting your bread upon the waters in a charitable network of faith, hope, and charity. And you get to decide always the power of decision as to who to give what to is you. That imperium rests with you. It, it, that, and that Now, was there ever any legitimate compulsory tax in Israel? I mean, I shouldn't say legitimate because Saul did force an offering. That was the beginning of Jeroboam was doing it. And our study of Amos is almost completely up now. It'll be completely up by Tuesday. Join the network and they'll notify you. I think it'll be there by Tuesday. But... uh, You can go through that study of Amos. You can already go through Hosea and many of the other uh, New Testament epistles we have up. And uh, with recordings, side notes, showing you how these words were used at the time, giving you countless references for you and Tim and all these other people, so that you can see that this is what the early church was doing. They were in the practice of pure religion. Modern Christians are not practicing pure religion. They're practicing the Corbin of the Pharisees, which makes the word of God to none effect. And they need to repent of that and turn around and go the other way and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness so that they can create a public health system in the kingdom of God. They will have already done that if they sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. But it will be a small p public health <laughs> And uh, it will be leading you towards true health in the kingdom, which right now the public health institutions of the world are leading you to destruction and degenerating society. And we'll probably talk more about that this afternoon uh, to show you some of the examples of that. But I thought I'd keep this pretty generic so that you could understand this. And we're going to be looking also at other things like equality. What is equality? What does it mean? Because if you read uh, Alexis uh, Tocqueville's account of early America, 
that uh, he mentions freedom and equality, and he often puts them at odds with each other. And so, why are they at odds with each other? I mean, to the point where they talk about uh, what some people call uh, Will Tocqueville's dilemma of equity and freedom being at odds with each other. Crash America. Well, you could add crash the world because the whole world, wherever America goes, wherever the U.S. goes, the world follows. But the kingdom of God is not of the world, meaning constitutional order or system of government. That's what Jesus was saying. He was saying it in a court of law. He did not hire a lawyer. He was saying in a court of law, my kingdom is not of this world. And guess what? Rome washed their hands of the case. So what really happened there? Well, you go read our article on that. But uh, join the network. Uh, Bernie Bush Festival is coming up. Learn about that on the network. Uh, learn about that at Preparing You and look us up there. Till then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.